The national anthem is being played and heard a lot on television these days. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics uh, like I have. I'm like totally glued to it. But you know, the, the national anthem is, is keyed up every time uh, another American wins gold, which is happening. You know, we're, we're kind of catching up with, with Norway and the ROC. Um, those cheaters. Uh, <laughs> if you watched the Super Bowl on Sunday, maybe you heard, uh, I think her name's Mickey Guyton. Is that right? Am I saying her name right? Anyway, she was the singer. She sang the national anthem at the Super Bowl. She really belted it out. Uh, while everyone stood at attention, sort of their hands on their breasts. If you've ever been to, I don't know, a sporting event where the national anthem is played, you know that it always builds up to this climax, sort of crescendo. I'll sing it, I guess. We get to that part where it's like, or the land of the free. And they hold that note for a long time. And everybody starts clapping and cheering. Thank you. Yep. This is where the crowd goes wild. Right? It's that note, land of the free. Like home of the brave, it's sort of a, a, we forget about that, right? It's the land of the free that gets everybody excited. As one observer has noted, both the melody line and our culture highlight freedom as the main theme and the value, not just of that song, but of, of our society. Right? We love our freedom in the USA. Um, it's treated almost as an axiomatic, self-evident truth that the more freedom that we have, the happier we're going to be. I'm not a math major, but I think you could sort of write an equation. Freedom equals choice divided by like restraint. The more choices we have and the less restraint we have, the more freedom we get. I think that's right. You could, you could, you could, that would work as an equation, right? The more choices that we have, the fewer restraints that we have, the greater our freedom would be and ostensibly the happier we would be. Over breakfast with a bunch of guys this morning at Henry's Diner, we discussed whether or not this was true, right? Is unlimited choice always the key to happiness? And is the, absent of, uh, the absence of restraints or boundaries always a good thing? Steve and uh, Jack DeLorenzo, they brought up the movie Jimmy Neutron. Boy genius. Uh, they explained the movie to me, which I, I haven't seen yet. I guess I have to see it, right? Max thinks I should see it, <laughs> right? Jimmy is an 11-year-old sixth-grade boy who makes all these gadgets that sometimes backfire and get him in trouble. One day, I'm guessing, it's when he's grounded in his bedroom. He wishes that his parents would disappear, that he never had parents. And sure enough, his wish comes true. One day, he and his friends wake up, and they discover that all of the parents in the town have been abducted by aliens. Well, no parents equals no more rules. They're completely and 100% free to do whatever they want. Unlimited, cho- or unlimited choices, zero restraints. So like no more bedtime. You can do whatever you want in the school. I think I saw a clip of somebody like surfing in the hallways. Ice cream cones like miles high. From an American cultural standpoint, it's all the ingredients right here for a fully happy and human existence. But Jack called attention to one scene in the movie that has always gutted him. There's this pudgy little kid sitting on the curb named Zachary. And his tummy is bloated, and he can't walk, and he's choking back tears. Zach tells a reporter, a kid, that he was in a contest to eat the most cotton candy, and he starts sobbing, I won. I was in a contest to eat the most cotton candy, and I won. And I want my mom, because he can't move. He's sick. He's, he's, he's really hurting. 
And as Zachary illustrates, and as Jack pointed out, too much freedom is not always a good thing. Steve and Jack describing that scene with Zach made me think of a nostalgic childhood movie of mine. It's the uh, Peter Pan-inspired movie Hook, uh, starring Robin Williams. So good. If you haven't seen it, like, come to my house. We'll, like, have a movie night and watch it. It's amazing. If you know anything about Peter Pan at all, there are these characters called the Lost Boys. It's a similar sort of scenario to Jimmy Neutron. There's no parents in Never, Neverland, right? There's no rules. The Lost Boys experience, enjoy absolute freedom. And it sounds great, right? But as you pay close attention, the rowdiness and the playfulness of the Lost Boys, sort of their no-rules-just-right attitude, it's actually masking a deep and profound pain. I didn't know this until today. I had to look this up. But in the original play, the Lost Boys are the kids who crawled out of their cribs and fell to the floor and were never found by the nurses. And they were never picked up by their parents. They were just sort of forsaken at the hospital. And so after seven days, they are sent to never, never land. See, the lost boys strike you as playful. They make you believe everything is awesome. Everything's okay. But it's a facade. Every one of the lost boys has a deep interior sadness. Every one of them is longing to belong. And if you were to ask a single lost boy to a person, they would all tell you, I would give up all of my freedom If I could be chosen, I would give up all of my freedom if I could be part of a loving family instead. No questions asked. Done. It feels kind of like a dichotomy. Sort of an either or. It's presented to us in some ways, at least the way that the culture makes it out to be. Uh, Is it better to be free or is it better to be long? Like, is it better to be free as a feather in the wind Or is it better to be rooted and grounded like a tree? We know how our culture votes. Culturally, in order to live the good life, in order to be fully and truly happy, you need to be free. You need to remove all restraints. Cut all ties to people and places. Even if that means cutting ties with your family and your place of origin, you have got to be free. When we graduate high school or college, someone inevitably gives us a copy of Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go. Did you get one as a gift? I did. Yeah, me too. The very first page reads, Congratulations. (laughs) Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off on a way. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You are on your own. And you know what you know. And you are the guy who will decide where you go. I think the book is very telling. And I think it captures, reveals, and distills sort of the mindset and mood of our freedom-obsessed West. If you abide by this story, your life is an autonomous journey in which you must master certain skills and overcome certain challenges on your way to individual success. Read the book again. There is no community On any page, there is no family, there are no friends there to guide you, support you, uphold you. Page one truth, you are on your own. There is no sense of belonging to people or to place. You're just constantly on the go. Oh, the places you'll go, right? You're constantly on the move, chasing your dream, getting your bread. 
And not only is this portrayed as the way life is, it is given to you as a gift. It is given you with blessing. Take this as your God. One of the saddest things that I've ever witnessed was a funeral for a very accomplished man. Oh, the places that he went. Oh, the things that he accomplished. He had a mighty impressive resume. But the people who were closest to him, like his wife and kids, they hardly knew him at all. It was really sad. And it reminded me of something I read by the New York Times columnist uh, David Brooks. He writes that there are two sets of virtues. There are what we would call resume virtues and what we would call eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are those things that would win you points in an interview. They might land you a job. Eulogy virtues are the kinds of virtues that you want said about you at your funeral. Like, Max was a really brave or kind man, right? Morgan, right, she was a woman of deep love. Brooks writes, we all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones. But our culture and our educational system spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. What good is it to have absolute freedom but be, be known and belong to nobody? What good is it, friends, to get straight A's but flunk life? I hear a similar sort of tension whenever I listen to the, the song uh, Helplessness Blues by the Fleet Foxes. Do any of you know that band? Do, you, do any of you know the song? It starts this way, and we can play it after Wednesday Night Fellowship if you want to hear it. The opening lyric is, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. Explaining sort of these verses in an interview, uh, songwriter Robin Pecknold, he explains how he grew up hearing the same sort of individualistic scripts that you and I hear every day. To be true to yourself, to you do you, follow your heart, do whatever what makes you happiest, never settle. Like, we get it, right? So, but I don't know where that has left me Which brings us to the next line in the song. It says, now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. So I was grazed up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake among snowflakes, right? Unique, distinct. But I've come to think I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. In some ways, he's taking us back to this question, sort of this dichotomy. Is it better to be free or is it better to belong? Is it better to be a snowflake, unique and free, sort of flying in the wind? Or is it better to be a tree, deeply rooted, or or part of a machine, right? Something greater beyond me. With this question ringing in your ears, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 27. In so many words, you don't have to choose between these two extremes. There is a way forward for you that will honor your individuality, even as it answers your longing to belong. The good life is pictured for us here as someone being baptized or incorporated into one body. You see this in verse 13 of the passage. Being brought into this body does not mean the end of individuality or your unique personhood, but it does mean the end of your autonomy. 
You can keep your individuality and your uniqueness, but you've got to let your autonomy go. You are not an island beholden only to yourself. You belong to something. More to the point, you belong to someone. But mind you, not as a cog in a machine. You are part of a, of a much, you're a much needed part of a body. You are a much valued member of a family. It's sort of the picture that is painted for us here. For the rest of our time tonight, I want us to zero in on this verse, verse 13. And for you to consider what it means to be baptized and how baptism connects with Jesus' vision of the good life. Secondly, I want you all to consider what it means to belong to a body and how you can practice that reality. Okay? First, what's baptism? And how does baptism connect with Jesus' vision of the good life? Look at verses 12 and 13 with me one more time. I'll read it out loud. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For, un, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here is the main thing that I want you to hear tonight. The main thing I want you to hear tonight is that baptism is ultimately about belonging to a body. That is what baptism is ultimately about. Right? The essence of baptism is being brought into or incorporated into a body. It's about belonging. In a highly individualistic and sort of self-expressive culture such as ours, that message is easily lost. And the, mass- and the message of baptism is very easily warped. Instead of uh, being about belonging, baptism can become a personal statement. Right? It's, uh, it's, instead of symbolizing God's great love for us, baptism can become, in our sort of self-expressive individualistic culture, right, something that we do to showcase right, my love for Jesus. It's sort of, I want the world to know that I love Jesus, and this is how I'm going to do it. Right? Baptism becomes sort of a personal choice that says or reflects something about me. Baptism as me. Something I might put on my profile page. I did this. I do this. Right? But that is not what baptism is or is ultimately about. Something is being communicated when we get baptized, but it's not our great love for Jesus so much as his great love for us. That's ultimately what's being communicated at baptisms. Not so much our great love for Jesus, but his great love for us. The closest analogy to baptism we have outside the church is an adoption hearing or ceremony. When a kid is adopted, parents are declaring their love for the child. Everything about the hearing proves this, right? The briefs that are filed, the documents that are signed, the vows that are made. But more than words are being expressed. The, the adoption hearing, the adoption ceremony, it signs and it seals that love. It makes that love visible and makes it permanent. And it serves as a legal guarantee. When all is said and done, there is a real radical change in the relationship between the parents and now this child. This kid who was on the outside, who was an orphan, or who was sort of being run through foster care, that kid is now in the inside. Not an orphan anymore, now a son or a daughter of this family. 
Someone who is an individual outside the family is now an individual who is part of a family, who is now part of a body. This person now belongs to someone, belongs to something called a family. This is true at adoption. This is true of baptism. It's it's the exact sort of dynamic that's at, at play. Most kids are adopted at a really young age. They may or may not know what is happening to them. But no matter the age, conscious of the adoption or not, any yes on behalf of the child is made possible only because the mom and dad already said yes to him or her. There's no adoption on the planet where the kid says yes before the parents say yes. It's always initiated by the parents. Always. It's true with our baptism too. In the words of the scriptures, we love him because he first loved us. Our yes to him is made possible because of his yes to us. But this is my point. Baptism is not just a statement, I love Jesus or Jesus loves me. Baptism is ultimately about you belonging to something. It's about you being brought into uh, and incorporated into a community, being brought into and uh, incorporated into a family. Verse 13 again, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. If you've ever been back, if you were baptized... You were brought into, you were joined with, you were made part of Christ's family, of God's family. Now, when a kid is adopted, they get more than just a new mom and dad. If there are other children in the family, they get a bunch of brothers and sisters, too. In our baptism, baptism, we do as well. See, in Christian baptism, we're officially made a part of the family of God. We get God as our father, and we get one another as brothers and sisters. Now, we still have a lot to learn, what it means to grow up into the family name, something that we will do well at times and we will fail at others. But this is not a job that we get fired from. Like, you can fire employees, but you don't fire your kids. It's within the bounds of the family that you and I learn to become a family member and get to experience the family benefits. Because it's there in the home as part of the family that you sit at the table and you're fed. It's there in the home that you are clothed by your mom and dad. It's there that you are instructed. It's there that you experience the warmth of the family, the, the, the depths of its love. When we are baptized, when we're adopted, we get a new name, right? We're, you're said, I baptize you in the name of the, the Father, in the name of the Son, and in, in the name of the Spirit. You have a new name on you. You are beloved. You are God's. You are a Christian. You're a little Christ. Not only do we get a new name, we get a new inheritance. And the baptism service makes all of this visible and tangible and concrete and real. It's not just something that you hear with your ears. It's something that you actually feel with your body. It's for you. Right? Not just it's not just for the world, it's for you. The water of baptism symbolizes and seals that from here on out, you belong to God. And he belongs to you. From here on out, you are a son. You are a daughter. You are still you. That's never going to change. But 
The you that is you is also now a part of a unit. You're part of a family. The essence of baptism is belonging. Verse 13. You're baptized into a body. You do not become a cog in a machine. As 1 Corinthians 12 makes plain, there is one body with many parts. There is unity and there is diversity. In this one body slash family, everyone is treated as an equal. Look at verse 14. The hand can't say, I don't, belong to the, I don't belong to the body because I'm not an eye. Nor can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you. Verse 21. In the body, there should be no inferiority complex or superiority complex. Everyone is equal. But being equal is not the same thing as being the same. Equality is not the same thing as sameness. Right? Equality is not the same thing as sameness. Within the uh, unity equality that is the body of Jesus, there is a lot of diversity. I mean, I don't mean for this to be abstract. Everyone in this room is equal. We're all equally imago Dei, but we're not all the same. Right? What's true of this room is true of the church. It's true of Jesus' body. We can all be equals. We don't all have to be the same. This is not us becoming homogenous units where we're, or like cookie-cutter versions. We're not cogs in a machine. We maintain our, our uniqueness even as we're incorporated into something that is diverse. Right? That's what's being described here. I mentioned the Madrigal family from the movie Encanto like last week. Which, if you still haven't seen it, you should. It's a good movie. It's sort of like unique in the Disney canon. Um, In the Madrigal family, there's one family. But within that family, you're going to find a diversity. Really like a plethora of personalities and gift sets. right? Roles and responsibilities. And the same is true of this family that we call the church. right? Right? Family Madrigal, family Jesus. Lots of one thing. Lots of personalities, lots of gifts. Belonging to a body family is different from belonging to a group of friends. And here's the distinction. You get to choose your friends. You don't get to choose your family. Right? Never. Like, you're born into it. Or you're adopted into it. But, like, you don't get to choose that. Right? It's sort of decided for you. Choose our friends We don't choose our family. Our families are often some of the hardest people to love. It's almost that God has given us people who are radically different from us saying, like, here you go. Here are some hard-to-love people. And they feel that way about you, right? Like, but here are some hard-to-love people. I want you to learn to love these people, and I want you to let them learn to love you. And sometimes this works and feels awesome, and sometimes it's painful and painfully awkward. But as I hope to explain in a moment, I think all of this is ultimately for our good. It's important for us to belong to a people that we don't always choose. That's sort of what I'm driving here. See, when we choose friends, likes are typically paired with likes. We, we are naturally gravitate towards those who look like us and think like us and talk like us and enjoy the same things. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's really good. Like, it's important for you to have people in your life that you share those things with. But if that is all that you have, 
you're kind of living in a silo, which is sort of like being made easier and easier by our technology and algorithms and even socioeconomic and political things that are just making it harder for us to like be in community with people who are different from us. You need friends, but if the only people you associate with are those who think like you, vote like you, talk like you, you are building into your life massive blind spots, and you're also sort of stunting your growth. There's a New York City pastor named John Tyson, and he talks about this in a recent interview. But there's a danger in living in sort of an intellectual or philosophical bubble or silo. And he says, and I quote, there is a danger of church driven by preferences. Like here's the preaching that I like or the worship that I like or the community groups that I like. He says, again, still quoting him, you will build massive deficiencies in your life because you make the assumption that your preferences are God's preferences. That's why you need to be around annoying people and to receive them as a genuine gift. This is why you need to be around the poor. Tyson says the poor are a gift to us because they have a different view of reality. And they have gifts to bring to us that are often overlooked in our affluence and luxury. We need, that's the end quote, we need to be around people who are really different from us if we're to not just see our cultural blind spots, but to actually grow. Theologian, uh, theologian uh, Jürgen Moltmann says, some, says something similar. He says, in the body of Christ, there will be strong and weak, educated and uneducated, people who are good to look at in the plain. No one is useless and of no value. No one can be dispensed with. He concludes, congregations without disabled members are, to put it bluntly, disabled congregations. You might not like it. You might find it hard and annoying at times. But God sincerely believes that you need to belong to a body, to a family, where not everybody looks, thinks, talks like you. That only within this kind of community will you actually grow into the person that God has made you and saved you to be. A person who resembles more and more, right, Jesus. Uh, I love the saying, live a kind of life that begs questions that only Jesus can answer. And baptized into the church, this happens all the time. You find yourself in relationships with people who are radically different from you. And Paul calls attention to this in verse 13. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. We're all made to drink one spirit. See, Jesus brings people together that are often separated by barriers, visible or invisible. He even brings enemies into one place, which were the Jews and the Greeks were. Like they hated each other. Um, But here they were, right, learning how to do life and, and love one another, not just as like as associates, but as brothers and sisters of one family. Jesus brings into the same room Democrats and Republicans. He brings together rich and poor. He brings together black and white, the educated and uneducated, the abled and the disabled, all the way down the line. And this group, RUF, is sort of a microcosm of that. See, in this room, we have folks from all walks of life, people from different family backgrounds, different from uh, various different life experiences. We don't just have in this room people from different parts of this campus. We have folks from different campuses, some from UVM, some from Champlain. 
We have different interests. We have different passions. We have different politics. We've got true Vermonters, and then we've got everybody else. We've got people who cheered for the Rams, and we've got people who cheered for the, the Bengals, like me. There's a lot of, I mean, on the surface, it doesn't look like much, but if you drill deep, there are, and there is, a lot of diversity, even within this room. Campus life, it pushes you in the direction of like hanging out with like. It does this when you find yourself studying in your major, right? Just being around people who are studying the same things as you. It's not bad per se, but it happens, right? Nurses in Given, engineers in Bodhi, the Rubenstein folks in Aiken, etc. On top of that, you've got programmed housing where you're surrounded by people who are liking the same things that you like. And on and on down the line, right? Like we sort of find ourselves just naturally being grouped like with like. But here, in this space right here, you can find people that you would, your, your, your lives would never intersect if it wasn't for this space right here. There are relationships that are formed here, not just in this interfaith center, but like at Henry's Diner on Wednesday mornings or at SJ's apartment on Tuesday nights or when we're ice skating or sledding or whatever, the things that we're doing together, lives are being brought together that wouldn't otherwise cross. And what's bringing us together is not politics or, path, like, or, or hobbies. It's this Jesus. We find ourselves saying yes to one another because he said yes to us. I like to call RUF and the local church a place of unlikely friendship. As I said, what brings us together is not a similar politic or background, but a common savior. Though the church is the most diverse and inclusive collection of people on the planet, and that's true, it is not pursuing diversity and inclusion for its own sake. When diversity and inclusion is treated as an end in itself, we start treating people like tokens to be collected or Pokemons to be caught, and you've got to catch them all, I've been told. <laughs> I mean it when I say that church is the most diverse and inclusive collection of people on the planet. But it is in this way because it's pursuing diversity and inclusion for its own sake. The basis for our unity and diversity is the recognition that everybody is made in the image of God, that we're all sinners, and therefore we're all equal. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost people, people like you and me. And simply put, if Jesus is calling you to himself and he's calling me to himself, that means he's calling us together. Not just us to him, but us to one another. We might not naturally be friends. Like, I, I'm not a student here. Like, we, I, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't share life together if it wasn't for Jesus. Like, just me and you, right? We might not naturally be friends, but here in the body, we can learn to love each other. You all can learn to love each other. Maybe you've heard about fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do you grow in these things? You don't do it in a vacuum. You learn to grow in love by loving hard to love people. You grow in patience as you're around those who test it. You grow in peace when you're around those who mess with your chi, right? What doesn't challenge you isn't going to change you. And God intends to change you for the better. Not to make you a cog in a machine, but into a son or daughter of the king. It's the image of his son. And the way that he does this is by baptizing you into his body, by adopting you into his family, by drawing you into a community where ears and hands are unified, even if they're not the same thing.
a community where you can learn and grow and depend upon one another. This is for your good and for your growth and ultimately to his glory. But here, listen, this takes practice. This takes practice. You actually have to show up. It is not good enough for you to just belong to the body of Christ in theory. As in, great, I belong to a bunch of people across time and space, which is true. But how about you belong to people in this time and in this place? Not just across time and space, but here, now. Actually join your life with flesh and blood Christians in this place, here and now. Right? That takes practice. Right? And you can start on Sunday. This is your invitation. You don't have to buy the lie that you are on your own. You don't have to star in a show that is all about you and the places you'll go. You don't have to get straight A's and flunk life. You don't have to have an impressive resume at the expense of being known or unknown and unloved. You do not have to be a lost boy or a lost girl longing to belong. You don't have to be a snowflake among snowflakes or a cog in a machine. You can be part of Jesus' body because he loves you. He calls you by name, and he calls you out of darkness and into his light. He calls you out of autonomy and into his family, a people and a place where you belong, where you fit, and where you have a part to play. Let's pray.